to learn and to be spoken to by you, whatever that may be, as Abby said, whether it's an encouragement or a correction, Lord, that we would receive it and be obedient to what your word says to us. I pray, Lord, that you would remove myself from this equation and that you would be who is speaking today, Lord. We love you with all of our hearts. We ask you to bless the service in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I was asked to teach <laughs> and to fill in. Um, and as filling in sometimes goes in, you know, our church, oftentimes we'll, you know, whoever it is, me, Oliver, John, we'll try to, you know, come up with a book to start going through. And it's like, well, every time I teach, I'll just go through this book. But that might be months in between and, you know, the last time I taught on whatever book, chapter one, was six months ago, and no one remembers it. So as I was praying about what to teach on, the Lord was leading me more in a direction of a topic, less of a verse-by-verse type of study, which is more traditionally Calvary, but I believe this is exactly where the Lord wanted me to go. So um, to the topic we're going to be teaching on is properly counting the cost of following Christ what that means. Um, and it's interesting. I I was asked right before I left for work this past week to, to fill in. So I, throughout the day, was praying about where the Lord would lead me in uh, in study. Um, I hadn't didn't hear anything until... So I, I work at O'Reilly Auto Parts in Ellsworth, and I drive to Brewer four times a day. I have a lot of time... Uh, by myself to pray and to listen to things. So I was praying a lot that day, and I I heard a song that is on my <laughs> my uh, my playlist that came on that is about the cost of discipleship and the cost of following Christ. And it's actually the second verse that I heard as soon as I was done praying. At one of the times I was praying, Lord, show me what I should teach on. This verse came on. And it was so impactful, and it was like immediately like the Lord was like, this is the direction I want you to go in is this topic of, of cost. And just for everyone to be on the same context of where I started from, I'm going to just deliver that second verse of the song. The song is by a band called My Epic, and the, the, the second verse says, Grace, we talk as though it's free, but who can measure the cost of your son or put a price upon your grief? So it's a gift, but it's not cheap. And I think what resonated with me immediately was the, obviously the truth of that statement. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure most people here have been taught, not all the time maybe, but at times, that our salvation, our, the gift of salvation is free. It's this free, yeah, let's just take it. It's a free ticket to heaven. And that's kind of where it's left, that that's it, that it's this free transaction. Yeah, Christ paid all for me, but it's, you know, it's a free gift for me. I can go to heaven. And I feel like that isn't really true. 
Um, it costs so much, yes, on the fathers and the sons half, but there is also a cost for, for us. And we should see that time and time again in, in scripture. And we're going to get into that. So getting into that, the cost, um, immediately then made me start to dwell on one of my favorite Christian books that I'm sure some of you have read called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German man who lived in Germany during World War II and was quite opposed to the Nazi party, to fascism, and became known to the Third Reich who he was, and they didn't like him because he was opposed to what they taught. Throughout his life, he ended up going to England. He became a pastor and then returned to Germany and uh, before the war was ended, and he preached um, illegally and converted many people to Christianity. And, um, you know, he was killed in a concentration camp. Unfortunately, it was about three weeks before the total surrender of the German army. So I almost made it, but he didn't. Um, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is an incredibly deep book that I encourage any Christian to read because it will give you a lot of food for thought and uh, show you what it truly means to uh, understand what grace is and how costly it is. Now, I bring that up. There's, he gives very good definitions between cheap grace and costly grace. And I'm going to go through those right now. He says, cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap Jack's wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, he says, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of the great price, um, of a great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son, 
For in the Bible it says, you were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. There is a lot said in the costly grace portion that a lot of people have probably not heard. We need to seek the scriptures to see what we're told. What, is it, what does it cost for us to say yes, to, to submit to Christ, to repent, true repentance, and the life of following Jesus? I mean, just at face value, if you look at the, the men in the Bible who followed Christ, it cost them everything. Everything. And even in today, today's world, where maybe you're not going to be killed for your faith in our country, there is still great cost to following Jesus in our life. We know that. Anybody who's bold for their faith is going to have pushback by someone in the world, if not the entire world, in your life. And that is a cost. That's difficult. It is difficult. Again, it's not necessarily martyrdom, but it could be and I know this sounds lame in comparison to people in the past who died savagely for their faith, but it could be a form of social martyrdom. Like you were ostracized from friend groups and family and people that you should be caring about and should be caring about you. But it's still what we're called to. The last quote of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer that is pretty famous is uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And it's pretty much that simple that the cost is anything up to and including death. <laughs> and we need, to be under, we need to understand that, count that cost in our life, and be willing to pay it upon Christ's request. So, for, like what does Scripture say? We know, we know a lot of what Scripture says. I have broken it down when I was doing the preparation. There's verses that clearly dictate what it costs us, what, it, what the cost is for us upon following Christ. And then there's also a lot of verses that we see of what it cost Christ and the Father. So I have several verses here I'm going to be reading through. You can make notes if you want. You can try to follow along if you'd like in your Bible, but there are several. So just listen along, follow along if you'd like. Luke 14, chapter 25 through 33, John Seer on Wednesday night actually taught on Luke 14, so this first one's a little bit of a refresher for those who were here on Wednesday. Luke 14.25 says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great um, way off, he sends a delegation and asks um, conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, um, 
He cannot be my disciple. Um, it's he's using very logical reason here, <laughs> that but in practical terms, like who wouldn't who would start a task of building a house is the example, and not before you start anything, consider what it's going to cost uh, the person, and the the point is how much more obviously should it be for us considering following Christ? It, it is a great undertaking to follow Christ. It's not just a simple, yeah, sure, I'll do it, and then everything's the same. Most likely, Christ will change your life <laughs> drastically and cause you to follow him in a way that looks different than how your life was being lived before that. I really like a, a pastor by the name of Paul Washer. I encourage people to, to listen to him. He's very good. But he's giving a, a message at one point back in his earlier days of teaching to a, at a youth conference, and his depiction of impact with Christ, I really enjoy. It's, he says that, you know, if you were walking across the street and a giant Mack truck impacted you as you were walking, you would look different. It would change your physical appearance getting hit by a massive truck. Christ is much larger than a truck. And if he impacts your life, it's an evident change. It's not a, oh, is that change? No, there is clear change in your life. People who aren't sure whether or not you're living a Christian life, you're doing something wrong. It shouldn't be something people have to hunt for. Our light should shine bright. You know that song I referenced before in the chorus, it says, seeds will never bloom till they die. Wicks don't shine until they're on fire. We are wicks for Jesus. <laughs> and we should be shining bright so that it is evident that there's a light coming from our life. And if people have to, again, search for light, then we're a pretty worthless light. And we shouldn't be a worthless light. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I know everybody in here has probably heard, you know, the significance of that. The Roman death instrument of the cross. Take it up. Follow me. Um, it, that goes to show that back then it was kind of evident that if you're saying yes to this, it's obvious to everybody what it means because everybody in the Roman world knew what a crucifix was. They walked past them daily watching people hanging and dying on them. It was a very evident thing that people understood it, what it was. So the invitation of take that up and follow me, the only reason you could ever take a cross was to be killed on it. Our faith will lead us potentially to our death for Christ, if that's what he asks us to do. And we should not only be okay with it, we should be joyful at that. And we'll get into it later when we get into some of the verses of what it costs Christ. But Isaiah 53 is the, one of the sections talking of the best example in the scripture of exactly what Christ endured. And part of that, you know, he was crushed for iniquity. And, it, and, and the Father, it pleased the Father to crush him. That is so much more the suffering Christ endured than the cross. 
us picking up our cross and leading it to our death is so infin- is so insignificantly much smaller of a sacrifice than what Christ went through on the cross. We shouldn't think of it as the same. We're doing what Christ did. Yeah, Christ died on the cross, but the cross is not what Christ sweat blood over. It is not. Nails and thorns is not. If that's what something you've heard, that's not true. It can't be. Because for the next few centuries, many Christians died in worse ways on crosses. And before they died on those crosses, were singing praises that they were counted worthy to die that way. And I struggle to believe that random Christians had more faith than the captain of our salvation. He was sweating droplets of blood because Christ was going to be completely inundated with every single sin and grotesque thing that any human has ever done by the Father. And not only was the Father going to do it, and while he was doing it, feel bad about it, but take pleasure in doing it. Turn his face from his Son and be separated entirely from his Son. That is so much worse than a cross. The cross is important. There needed to be a bloody sacrifice. There did. But that is not when he said it is finished, what he said it is finished about. In Luke, carrying on, 9, 57-52, another example of what it may cost us. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that some someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Essentially saying this is a very poor and not and homeless ministry. Like, not glamorous. A lot of people do pursue a life of ministry thinking that it might also be somewhat nice, a nice life. And obviously there's people in the world who do serve the Lord in ministries and they do have a you know fine life. There's a lot of people who served the Lord and said yes to the Lord and their life was ripped apart because they served the Lord. And that is what, again, part of our cost. Saying yes might be, I served when I was overseas with a person who uh, they were very opposed to saying yes to this calling that they felt they were hearing. The person and their wife didn't want to do it. Kept not, kept not going, kept being a very Jonah about it, Mm-mm, not doing it, until through a circumstance not of their own choosing, they were their their house essentially got destroyed, and they had to leave because the Lord kept. Yeah, they really believed they were hearing the Lord say, "I want you to sell your house and go overseas," and they just weren't about that. They were like, "We never." It's not you know. They weren't willing. They weren't submitting to the Lord in that. So they believed the Lord took their house and kind of forced their hand. And they ended up going because they're like, well, now we have nowhere to go now, so I guess we'll go. And they ended up, long story short, it was an incredible blessing. It was good. But a lot of people don't want to say yes to a calling to the Lord because it means potential difficulty, discomfort. Um, and obviously our culture is very, very, very in love with comfort and being, I don't know, chill, being good. We don't like not being how we want. We're very selfish people. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but go and preach the, the kingdom of God. So, you know, family, a hugely important thing to most people. 
And before I continue, I'm even going to read the next one because it's also family-related. And, and also, and another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That one is probably the most disconcerting to me. We are so in love with continue, maybe trying to serve the Lord and simultaneously hang on to whatever, family, a job, something, whatever is something that's attaching us to this world. But maybe Christ is, that last section there is very much about, like, if you're, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's, it's both eyes forward, momentum that way, like, don't worry about anything else. It's Jesus. And if while we're focusing on Jesus, we're concerned with the past or we're concerned with other people or we're concerned with family or we're concerned with whatever, it doesn't say, like, don't do that. It says you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That should be terrifying. <laughs> and we need to, like, take that into account and be like, are we looking back? Have we even begun to push the plow? But if we have, are we looking back? Are we concerned with these other relatively, in terms of Jesus, meaningless things? Which is where you get the, if you don't hate your father and your mother and your sister and your brother, you know, it's not despised, but it is in comparison to Christ, it will look to the outside as if it may be hate. Because a lot of times people make decisions for Christ and everyone in the world is confused, like, what are you doing? Or, do you not care about these people? Well, compared to Christ, no, I don't. That's what Jesus says. <laughs> yes, sure, we love them. He's not saying to hate our family, but if it comes down to Jesus or family, Without hesitation, it should be Jesus. Like, it shouldn't even be something you consider. And if we, if we do that, then it's saying we aren't, worried, we aren't fit for the kingdom of God. And then the other concept of sacrifice and of, of the cost for a Christian life, two quick ones. One is in John um, 12, 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. For anyone, um, If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. We are called to service. We are not called to be served. We are only called to service. And then another verse that highlights that is Mark 9.35. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. If we want to understand Christ's heart, it's serving. Christ didn't come to the world to be served. He came to serve. And if we want to have him as our chief example, well, if he served, then we absolutely better be serving. Somewhere, somehow, anyway. Maybe you don't feel equipped or adequate to serve, but there's something that someone, there's something anyone can do. And it doesn't have to be glamorous. Whatever that may be, that there's an opportunity. Maybe you see something that could get done. Oh, this could be, well, fine, do it. Jump on in there. This is a team effort in a church. We're a body of Christ. It's not some people here and other people. It's we're all the same. We're all on one team for Christ, and we're all to serve one another. Now, back to Isaiah 53. <laughs> Starting in verse, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, if you're following along. It says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. I like certain other translations that say crushed for our iniquities because it was more of a crushing blow than anything. The um, chastisement of our peace was upon him. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its uh, shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? Um, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him or to crush him. And that's such a vivid understanding of what Christ went through, what the Father went through. And that's why when we say, you know, like, oh, man, it's a free gift. It's a really costly gift. It costs the creator of the world to die for us because we're stupid. <laughs> we're failures. And because of our mistakes, we had to let the Son of God be killed for us. And that is something that should be on our minds all the time and should compel us to A, count the cost, and whatever that cost may be, once you've added it up, understand that it's worth paying. Whatever Christ has called us to, it is absolutely worth paying. And then Romans 6.23, everyone knows, for the wages of sin is death. It costs Christ death. All, all death. Not a death, all death, all eternal separation, death from the Father is what it cost Christ. Anyone who has ever lied and cheated and lusted and fornicated and done all murderous things was attributed to Christ. Father looked at Jesus as a liar, as a blasphemer, as an idolater. He'd never done any of those things, but he was still looked by the Father as those things. It's crazy to think. We would struggle to let someone in our life here, a random person, like, pay a fine. I would, I would feel terrible if I did something wrong and some random person out of the kindness of their heart was like, I'll cover it for you. would be like, I can't let you do that. That's terrible. But we, Jesus died for us. That's so much crazier. <laughs> None of us wants to go to hell. We don't. But we really need to understand that that's absolutely what we deserve. Absolutely. People who think that there's any entitlement to heaven are they're nuts. They have no idea, how, like, truly, like, how wretched we are. We are, it's crazy how much we don't deserve to be in the presence of Jesus someday. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price... Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, 
which are God's. We don't own this body. We don't own our spirit is given to us. So we shouldn't feel like we have the right to do anything with it other than glorify the one who gave it to us. We were bought with a price. And that's that right there is suggesting that this gift of salvation isn't free. Yet we treat it as it is, as if it is. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, and this one is kind of the, the big one that really makes me, uh, it highlights everything that we've, that's been said and puts it into a verse that is really difficult to process. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse is crazy. <laughs> it is such a perfect articulation of what we have before us and what a lot of people really don't fully comprehend. Not only is it saying Christ was made sin, which is cr insane, that in heaven, with the Father, perfect unity. Because their create the creation rebelled, and there was so much love, is willing to step out of perfect, per constant perfection, unity with the Father, to live a lowly life, and be yeah physically beaten, and then crushed with all the wrath of all time by his father and separated from his father because there's that much love for us. And then because he did that, we can say that we have the righteousness of God. I am so far from anything remotely like righteousness of God. It's insane. But I can say that I have the righteousness of God because of Christ. That should blow your mind that like I look in the mirror and I, like, I can say I have right, the righteousness of God on my life. I am an awful person. We all are. But we have that gift. That is the gift that we can say we are righteous. We have not just righteous, the righteousness of God. So I have an example of cost in a person's life. Some of you here may have heard this story. Others maybe haven't. Back in 100 years, 100 and something years ago, I think it was like 1904, 05, there was the Welsh Revival. Um, missionaries from that kind of exploded and went all over the place from the success and the positivity that was the revival that was happening in Wales. Um, a group went, a bunch of a bunch of missionaries ended up um, in India. And um, there was a smaller group from uh, the American Baptist Mission that went to a region in northeastern India called Assam. The region there is um, was, at the time, Predominantly, very primitive, savage, aggressive tribal villages. Killed one another, killed outsiders, very hostile. A group of missionaries decided to undertake going there. 
to try to share the gospel with these people. And as you may assume, it didn't go well. Now, supposedly, from the story that you can find, it doesn't seem like anybody actually died. It just, the, the gospel that kind of hit a wall. There wasn't much reception. However, right before they decided to leave, one of the missionaries had a successful conversation with one random village man, um, and he received Christ. He repented and became a Christian. And then that man's wife and two children became Christians as well. After they left, um, supposedly he was sharing the gospel effectively, and many in his tribe were becoming saved. And um, he was doing such good work sharing the gospel that the chief of the tribe heard about this and became incredibly angry um, and told everyone to stop. You can't believe this anymore. That didn't work. People began to continuously believe it and still more growth. So he had the man who was the first convert brought into like this open area in front of the village and in front of the chief with his family. And he was told, you need to renounce your faith right here in front of everybody or you'll be killed. And this is a very true story. It's one of those things you hear and you're like, this is, can't be real. Upon being given the ultimatum of renounce Christ or die, in the moment, filled with the Holy Spirit, responded in song with, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. As soon as he finished saying that, with anger, the chief had both of his sons killed with arrows. And immediately says, do you want to lose your wife? And said, renounce your faith right now. And then responded with, though no one joins me, still I will follow three times. No turning back. Wife gets killed. I will spare your life if you renounce your Christ. Your, renounce Christ one last time. To which he responds, the cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. And then he was shot and killed. Whole family dead. That's cost. But after seeing this, the chief nearly went mad because he couldn't fathom why this guy cared so much about this random guy who lived 2,000 years ago, or at that time not quite 2,000 years ago, but a long time ago in the Middle East, has nothing to do with their village. Why would he die and let his family die for this? So he said, if this God can give him this faith, I want a taste of that faith. Immediately said that he wanted to repent. The entire village, in relief that now they aren't going to die, everyone gets saved. So, that man who died, the first convert's name was Noksang, N-O-K-S-E-N-G. He was of the Garo tribe, 
in India today that's still the village song that is sung in that area. Um, we don't necessarily have cost like that in America, thankfully. But at the same time, we all need to understand that, and we should process that cost, that if that was a cost Christ demanded of us, we should be willing to do the same thing. And that's a really hard thing to truly think of that and try to say I would do the same thing. It's impossible. It's really not. It's hard to feasibly process that, going through that with family and dying. And But the cost of Christ is not just this light thing to just be like, yeah, grace, whatever. It's such a heavy thing. It's so heavy. It costs Christ death, separation from the Father. It cost the Father crushing his own son in pleasure. We need to really seek Christ and understand the cost that he might be calling us to pay in our life to follow him and consider whether or not we're willing to pay it. But we should get to the point where we are absolutely willing to pay it because we should remember what Christ did for us and say, anything's worth that. I will submit and follow him no matter what. Yeah. I'm about 15 minutes early, but I'm going to close in prayer. Um, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts in our own life, Lord, and that we, as we go about our day, every day, would understand that while we haven't, we're never going to have to pay at all what your son paid, we need to understand that that cost was great for you. And that in our willingness to follow you, you still demand a price. And that may be different for different people, but it, it's going to cost us something, whether that is friends and family, relationships, or maybe that is a career, or maybe that is, who knows, Lord. There's so many things that could be sacrificed that you call us to, and we need to be willing to, to lay that those things down. If we are presented with an opportunity that we clearly know is, is your calling on our heart, and we have to debate whether or not to do it because of some other thing, Lord, we need to, <laughs> to repent of that. We need to throw everything else to the wind. We need to, yes, as harsh as it is, in comparison to our desire to follow you, not to not show love towards our, our friends, family, love anyone. And it, to the world it may look, like you say, like hate, but it isn't. It's just that above, there's nothing above you, Lord. You're first. If anything is trying to get in the way of that, we should stiff arm it. Get out of the way. You are, you are our focus. Once we've put our hands to that plow, we can't look back. Lord, I don't want to be unfit for your kingdom. No one here wants to be unfit for your kingdom. Help us to, once we've made the commitment to follow you, we would not look back. I pray that we would think of that man in India. Use him as an example in our daily life. If there's something that, I don't know if I want, well, look, that guy probably didn't want those people to die, but no turning back. There is no turning back. I pray, Lord, that you give us a passion and a zeal to commit to this way.
and that nothing would derail us from following you, no matter the cost. Pray that you go with us today and bless us. We love you. We ask you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.